If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. You know, Steve had said to me earlier um, that uh, that you guys were doing a sermon series through through Matthew, and we we went back and forth over some passages of whether or not uh, I would preach from Matthew or whether or not I would preach something else. And he finally just came and said, "Hey, look, why don't you just pe- preach one of your favorite passages and um, or preach a, a passage of scripture that that is particularly meaningful for you?" And so I thought I would do that this morning. I thought I would open up John chapter four and share with you. Um, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Uh, and it is Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, open them again. John chapter 4. I'm going to read. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit. I won't read the entire passage all in one, all in one sitting uh, from the beginning. But I will work my way through the entire passage uh, as we move on. This is not particularly... Um, I typically like to do shorter uh, passages at a time. I like to do verse-by-verse, line-by-line exposition. I think that is uh, the most helpful thing to do as an expositor. Uh, This morning, I'm going to take a larger chunk of passage, and I think it's important that sometimes we, we take a step back and we look to say, what is this entire passage? What is it telling us? Um, and so I would say we're probably at the Instead of the ground level, we're more at the 15,000 foot level. We're not at the 30,000 foot level where we could be, but we're, we're, but we're in somewhere in that region. Um, I'm going to read the first 15 verses for us to open us this morning. John chapter 4. And I would say, if you're able, I'd ask you, you'd stand and honor the reading of the Word of God. John writes into the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as we read these words this morning, it is as if God is speaking to us right now through the pages of His Scripture. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he, had to pass, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For for, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his son and and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water 
that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's pray. Oh, oh God, our Father, Lord, we pray, Father, that you would speak through your word. Father, that I might decrease, that you might increase. God, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of your of your Lord stands forever. Lord, we ask all that in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. To be the hero. To be the hero. Uh, there's a desire in us all to be the one who comes in during difficult times, during difficult situations, and, and either hits the game-winning home run, throws the game-winning touchdown pass, or catches the touchdown pass, uh, that saves the city from the from all the bad guys. That 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 you, you get the picture, right? All of us have this desire, and this is why every year, every summer, these movies come through. These movies come through the theaters, and they're all about superheroes, and they're always the blockbuster hits. They're always the ones that make the most money. There's such an intrigue, isn't there? For superheroes, superhero movies. You know, I parent three boys, as Mike said earlier, a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and an almost three-year-old. Uh, our house is a constant uh, war zone. And there's a constant uh, desire. I, I, I constantly am seeing uh, in the presence of Captain America and Batman and Superman and Iron Man, uh, we just recycle all the old Halloween costumes. You can go to you can go to to Walmart, Target right now, and you can see they've already started to to market these costumes, most of which are superhero costumes. Listen, we all have this desire, don't we? We all know what this desire is. There's such an intrigue to being the hero, to seeing the hero. As my sons have a love for superheroes, you know, I think there's something in all of us that identifies with the hero or the desire to be the hero. But do you know, when it comes to reading and understanding the Bible, the desire to be the hero can be one of your worst enemies. There's a danger of taking a story in the Bible and trying to identify with the hero. This misguided hermeneutic often seeks to to skip over the original context and run straight to application. We see this happen often. Uh, Part of my role in uh, Capshaw as associate pastor is to oversee all of our children's and student ministries. And oftentimes what you find in children's ministries in particular is this misguided hermeneutic. We take stories like David and Goliath and we want to teach it to our sons and daughters and we want to tell them, son, daughter, pick up your five stones like David. Go slay your, your sin, Goliath. Go slay the giant just like David. Be strong, be courageous. And yes, there is some truth. We want to train my sons to be strong, to be courageous, but but the, the passage that we read, the encounter of David and Goliath, you are not David. And it is, it is wrong to teach 
someone to, to, to be like David, to be strong and be courageous. It's wrong to take that passage and to try and apply it to your life that way. No, you are not David. You are Israel. You are Israel and you're trembling in the corner. You have no idea what to do. You're paralyzed with fear. And God sends a rescuer. A rescuer. In just the same way, he sends that rescuer in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, this type of application, if we're not careful, will drive people to be little Pharisees who think hard work and more faith is what pleases God. Now, regarding our passage this morning, John chapter 4, there's, there's a danger in telling ourselves that this passage is about how we like how we want to be like Jesus and use it to instruct us on in how we should witness. Now, about how we should be like Jesus and not pass judgment upon this woman. And while all of this may be true, we, we, we definitely need to be witnessing more, right? And there may be uh, a few implied truths about personal evangelism that we can learn from the Master Himself. And I pray that As true as this may be, personal evangelism is not the main point of this passage. It's not the main point of this story that we see here. We are not Jesus in this story. We are not the hero in this story. We are actually the one needing to be rescued. So here's my main point. I'm going to give you my whole main point right here. If you fall asleep, fall asleep after this point, okay? We, in this passage, we are the woman. We were created to worship, and and we will worship. However, because of our sin, because of our brokenness, we run to the wrong wells in life. Wells that that do not satisfy our thirst. In fact, they they will leave us craving more and more. We, We worship created things rather than the Creator. Moreover, we're blinded to our deep longing for the living water. We need to be sought out. We need to have an encounter with Christ. And He is our only remedy for our spiritual thirst. He is the hero. Now, I'll unpack this passage for us this morning with three points. Three points, and I'm going to take my seat. Are you ready? You ready? Okay. Let's go. First point I want you to see that we are thirsty and we are spiritually blind. We are thirsty and we are spiritually blind and we need Jesus to pursue us. We need Jesus to pursue us. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 lets us in on something really amazing. Anyone with a decent study Bible we'll see that Jesus didn't really have to go through, through Samaria to get to Galilee. He didn't have to go that way. As a matter of fact, although it was the shortest route, Jews during this time would have avoided this, this particular way at all cost. You see, there, there was much tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. After Solomon's reign, the nation of Israel was split into... Uh, into the northern and southern kingdom. The southern kingdom uh, was Jerusalem, and the northern 
kingdom was Samaria. And the Samaritans had intermarried and were seen as half-breeds. Uh, the, the Jewish people had a special kind of hate and hatred for the Samaritans. There, there's evidence that shows that, that, that the Jews would pray for restoration and salvation for themselves, but, but pray for the judgment and the wrath of God to be poured out on the Samaritans. Now, that's a special kind of hate. This phrase that's used here in verse 4, Jesus had to go. He had to go. And this had to go in the original Greek language is, is more than just a, an expression of necessity. Jesus had to go because he was on a divine appointment. Amen. A divine appointment that was determined, listen to this, before the foundations of the world. Jesus had to go because it was the Father's will. And as the story moves on, we find Jesus sitting at Jacob's well that was about a half a mile south of Sychar. And the text tells us that it was the sixth hour, noon. It was the hottest point of the day. An odd time of the day to draw water from the well. You know, normally women of the town would have gone early in the morning or late in the evening, right before daylight ended right before it got dark as you can imagine this would have been a very social event um ladies now you know you 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 don't go to the restroom by yourself right you take someone with you Uh, the same way this would have been a very social event um however this woman she she didn't want to be seen in public She didn't want to be with anybody else. She didn't want to encounter anyone else. She was an outcast. For reasons we'll see as we continue to unpack this passage, however, Jesus, remember, is on a mission. He was in pursuit of this thirsty woman. Now, look at verse 7. Jesus sees her and asks her for some water. Now, a number of things you would have never seen a a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi do. One... Jews don't talk to Samaritans, remember? And two, rabbis, they didn't speak to women in public. Three, Jews would have never, never taken a drink of water from a Samaritan because they would have believed in doing so would have made them ceremonially unclean. So she recognizes this. This woman recognizes what's happening here. Like this is, this is no small matter. She, she recognizes the tension that's here. And she questions Jesus on it. She says in verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now she, now she thinks she's in position to be the hero here. Right? Jesus is asking her for water to be the one to help out. But, but Jesus immediately turns the table on her, doesn't he? Immediately. Look at verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Amen. Now, now, those of us who know who this man really is, this statement makes sense. You know, at first, 
of, because of her blindness, she couldn't understand or make the connection that Jesus was making. She couldn't see or understand the spiritual because her mind was still set on the physical. How, how will this man give me a drink when he has nothing to draw water with? He, he has no way of gathering water. How is he going to give me something to drink? And Jesus was pointing to her greatest need, her spiritual need, her spiritual thirst. Now, by way of application, we all have this thirst. Every one of us. You see, it's, it's something within us all. We were created to worship and praise, and we will worship and praise. Amen. We, we were created to worship and praise. We were created with a void that can only be filled by the one true and living God to, to seek joy and satisfaction in Him alone. We were created to worship. You go back to Genesis. Before the fall, man perfectly worshipped the Creator. And in the fall, we see man begin to worship something else. Remember, they're created with an insatiable desire to worship. And what do they begin to worship? The created things rather than the creator. In the remainder of the Old Testament, in the whole Bible for that matter, we see God radically pursuing his chosen people in order to make them worshipers of him. A pursuit he's on, even today, even right now, for you and for me. See, there's a worship void within us all. And everything we know and see and experience in this world is competing to fill this void. Remember, we will worship. The question is, What are you going to worship? Is it going to be the creator or the created? This void, this thirst is clearly seen in this story of Jesus' encounter with this Samaritan woman. We, like the woman, we we don't have the capacity to see past our physical needs to our deep spiritual need. And we need this living water, the the kind that's mentioned in verse 14, that satisfies like nothing we've ever tasted before. And we need to be pursued. Now, some people don't really believe in love at first sight. And that's okay. That's fine. But I'm telling you, for me, um, it was December 6, 2002. I met my, my wife um, for the first time. And I was absolutely convinced that this was the woman I was going to marry. Now, my wife, um, the feeling was not mutual. Okay? The feeling was not mutual. Um, but I was convinced and I was determined. And uh, from that point on, uh, all year long, juicy notes, flowers, uh, and, and everything you could possibly think of. And guess what? It paid off. Right? In December, I'll be married 10 years. 
Um, and uh, like again, and I, I know this for sure. I am one hundred percent positive that if I had not pursued my wife the way I did, we would not be married right now. I, I am I am one hundred percent convinced, and just as my pursuit of my future bride was essential to the reality of our marriage today, so is God's pursuit for our soul is essential to us coming to know Him. Do you understand that? If God does not pursue, if Christ does not pursue us and come after us, and we're left to our own, we're in deep trouble. Listen, we are thirsty people, but before God pursues us and before the Spirit opens our eyes, we too, like the woman, are blind to our spiritual thirst. We need to be pursued by God, and when He does, our eyes are open to the reality of our brokenness, our need for water. When when we're exposed to our deep need, to be rescued, an encounter with the holy, righteous, and just God will expose us of our sin. We are thirsty, and we are spiritually blind. We need Jesus to pursue us. Which brings me to my next point. We've been running to the wrong wells, and we need to be exposed. We've been running to the wrong wells, and we need to be exposed. Look at verse 16, I'll pick it back up in verse 15 for context. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Listen, when she asked for this water in verse 15, Jesus immediately cuts to her deepest wounds, doesn't he? He immediately cuts to the thing that, that, is, that she's most ashamed about, the things that she's most broken about, the things that she knows she, she's carrying. The text says, She's been married five times and now is now living with another man she's not married to. Now, modern evangelism tactics would not agree with this method of approach. Um, But for the master, it is methodical and it is strategic. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked. Jesus was showing her that she's been running to the wrong wells. She's been trying to find joy and satisfaction in one man after another. And she's been, as the old... I always think about this, probably a bad illustration. The, uh, the old country singer uh, Johnny Lee, right? Uh, looking for love in all the wrong places looking for love in too many faces. Jesus knew 
her quest to satisfy her thirst was falling short. Listen, we, we all have different kinds of wells we run to in an attempt to find satisfaction, to find joy, to find happiness. Why do some people cheat on their spouse? Why do some people struggle with contentment? Why, why do some people long and desire for the bigger and better house? Why, why do some people long for the new car? Why do some people, they, they've, just, they've got the brand new iPhone, but the new iPhones were just released. They just announced them. I mean, what about the new iPhone? Right? Now, I'm not condemning any of those things. I'm not going to stand on the side. If you have the new iPhone, that's fantastic. I'd love to see it after, after worship this morning. Well, listen, it's estimated that 50% of Christian men struggle with a pornography addiction. And why is this a struggle? Why, why do so many people struggle with substance abuse? It's pervasive. I can't tell you how many counseling cases that I've worked with and have seen people enslaved into substance abuse. Why do so many people mindlessly binge watch ridiculous amounts of television and, 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 and scroll endlessly on Facebook and Twitter? Instagram. Now, again, I'm not condemning any of these things, okay? Maybe substance abuse and sexual morality. I'm definitely going to, I definitely will uh, condemn those, right? Facebook's not. You can use that for God's glory. I think there's a way. So I, I'm not, I'm not going to harp on these things. But we literally could go on and on. We, we all have these wells that we run to, looking and longing for something. Just another couple of flicks down, and I'm going to be satisfied, right? At the root of our dissatisfaction is a never-ending thirst that nothing in this world can satisfy. That's the whole point of this. It's for you to recognize that nothing in this world is going to bring you lasting satisfaction. Hear me out. Listen, Listen closely. All of these things... Make crummy gods. For some of you, it's the spouse that you have. Or the spouse that you wish you had. Or the children that you have. The success of your children in life. Making good grades. Making the baseball, football team. Just becoming popular and being liked by, by other people. All of these things make crummy gods. They will never bring lasting satisfaction. Listen, we've been running to the wrong wells. And we need to be exposed. Which brings me to my final point. Jesus is the living water and he is the remedy for our thirst and blindness. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will 
you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Christ said to her, I who speak to you am he. Listen, embarrassed by Jesus' penetrating analysis of her analysis of her moral condition. Verse 19, the woman turned the discussion to religion, notably the, the proper place of worship. She conceded she was no longer talking to a dusty, just a regular old dusty stranger uh, with, a, with a, uh, peculiar ideas about the source of water, but, but she was talking to a prophet. She recognized this is not just some ordinary man. So to turn the conversation away from her personal morals, she, she raised what may have been the most important distinction between Jewish and Samaritan theology, which was centered around the place of worship. See, Abraham and Jacob had worshipped on uh, Mount Gerizim. You see this in Genesis chapter 12 and 33. But according to the Samaritans, uh, that was the place, the very place Abraham had offered Isaac on the altar. The Samaritans overlooked any references to Jerusalem in the historical books because they, they only focused and acknowledged the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. So, so Jerusalem worship meant nothing to them. And they had built on Mount Gerasim, 400 years earlier, a, a temple that was destroyed by the Jews about 128 B.C. And the appropriate site of worship now became the topic. This was the hot topic between Jews and Samaritans. And she couldn't see past the external factors of worship to see what really matters. She wanted to know where to go encounter the living God. Verse 21 through 24, we find one of the strongest worship statements in the New Testament. Jesus takes time to point her to the new covenant. The promise of the Holy Spirit and that, that worship is an attitude of the heart which acknowledges God and His sovereignty over our lives. Furthermore, as he points, that worship must be done in truth, honestly, biblically, Christ-centered, centered on Christ. Now, I realize I need to be careful here. Uh, you start addressing matters of worship and buildings in some churches and, and the gloves come off. Uh, Jesus was crucified and, and Stephen was martyred for trying to address very, the very same issues. So I shouldn't be surprised if I have a few stones thrown at me either when talking about it. You know, sometimes we get so wrapped up into thinking 
of the external conditions have to be perfect in order to worship God. The music has to be a certain way. It has to be traditional. It has to be hymns. It has to be all praise. It, ha- it has to be, uh, there has to be guitars, or there has to be drums, or there has to be this, or there has to be that. You get the idea. For some, the building has to be perfect. The temperature has to be perfect. This piece of furniture has to be over here, not over here. The color of the carpet has to be this, it has to be that. Our eyes can so easily be on our feet that we fail to see what really matters. Verse 23, Jesus tells us here that a time is coming, it is now here. Rather than, the, rather than the, just the hour of crucifixion, the emphasis here seems to rest upon the first advent. The Messiah has appeared. Verse 25, the gospel has already been proclaimed. Life and light are available. Jesus, listen, is seeking thirsty people like this woman, like you and like me, to drink and be satisfied. Listen, true believers must stop. Hear me out. Must stop this mindless, endless bickering about the sights and sounds of worship. God is not interested in Jews or Samaritans or Baptists or Methodists or Calvinists or Arminians. He is interested in worshipers who must worship in spirit and in truth. Listen, Jesus later left Samaria and he continued on his trip. He had a mission to complete. To live a sinless life and become the perfect substitute for us. Left to ourselves, we will worship and we will go to the wrong wells. We are looking for joy and satisfaction in things that, that, won't, that, won't, that won't meet our needs, and won't meet our satisfaction. But if Christ does not pursue, then we're in trouble. And the truth is, we deserve hell. We deserve complete separation forever. However, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn us. Isn't that good news? For a bunch of dirty sinners begging for water, running to wrong wells. However, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn us. He came into it to rescue us, to pursue thirsty, misguided worshipers like you and me. In closing, I just want to say this. Listen, you and I were created to worship, to thirst. We have a void that only God is meant to fill. But we have committed a treasonous act of running to the wrong wells. We deserve judgment. Without Christ, we will pursue something else. We will never seek after him. We are dead in our sins and trespasses, as Ephesians 1 tells us. All we like sheep have gone astray, each to his own way, Isaiah 53. And there is none righteous, 
No, not one. You know what that passage means? That, our, that there's none righteous, and then later on says that our righteousness is just as filthy rags, right? That means even in your best, there's enough pride in my very best sermon to condemn me before a righteous God forever and ever, and he is totally just to do just that. Do you understand it? So even at your best, this is filthy rags. Listen, we need to be pursued like the woman. We need to have our eyes open like the woman. We need to be exposed like the woman. We are the woman. Okay? And we need a rescuer. We need a hero. We need Christ, the living water. And there's, there's only one that can truly satisfy. And God offers us himself in the person of Christ. Christ alone can provide the satisfaction and thirst-quenching joy that we so desperately are seeking. And in my... I'm not naive in thinking that everyone here today is walking in full vitality of the gospel. My guess is that there are some here who are walking with Christ, but, it, but it's really rocky. Maybe you're in a place in life where you find yourself continually running to the wrong wells. You, you want to be walking. Uh, you, want, you, you may be waking up every morning pleading with God to show you grace and mercy and pray that, that you can find uh, this word and encouragement this morning. Run from the wells that do not satisfy and run to Christ. Amen. There are some of you here this morning who are deceived into thinking you're truly walking with him. Thinking you're actually a Christian. You're living this dualistic kind of life. You may have once had an emotional experience, got amped up into making the decision for Christ. You might have prayed the prayer, walked the aisle. You may be even a a regular church attender, but it's shaped more by what's seen as the cultural norm. It's what we do here in Huntsville, Alabama. It's what you do on Sundays. But when it's all said and done, there's a resting in what I'm doing rather than what Christ has done. When it's all said and done, there's, there's no real desire to put off the old self, no real desire to grow in Christ's likeness, no real love or affection for Jesus, no real desire to be obedient to his word. Listen, if that's you, Satan has deceived you into thinking you're saved. Christ is pursuing you. Repent of your self-perceived righteousness where you think you have it figured out, but you don't. Some of you are here Because you were invited to come by a friend. Maybe this is the first time you've even heard anything about sin. Or or about Christ or about his substitutionary death on the cross. No matter where you are on the spectrum, I believe you're here for a purpose. And God is pursuing. He is seeking thirsty people. He is in pursuit for your heart's desires. To expose you of your sin and unbelief. Listen, 
The exposing of sin is a gift. It is a gift to show you the living water and to say to you, repent and trust. Rest in Christ. Rest in what he has done for you. Rest in what he's done for you on the cross. Lean on him. Trust his word. Cast your burdens upon him and cling to the cross. Listen, Paul, uh, Paul Henley's mom, I remember her, she says this all the time, and I, just, I love it. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Isn't that good news? Amen. That the cross is for everyone. And after that, after we have recognized what God has done for us in Christ, after we understand the indicatives of Scripture, who we are because of what Christ has done, then the imperatives come into place. So you want application about personal evangelism? It comes after you have a firm foundation of who you are in Christ. And after that, to be like this woman later on in the chapter, if you were to continue reading on John chapter 4, she runs down to the city. You go into the city Go into your workplaces this week telling everyone you encounter that you've met a man. A man that can satisfy your thirst like nothing else in this world. That's good news. Amen. Let's pray.